Well, some of you know Jesse Thompson. I had the opportunity to preach with Jesse at a conference in Haiti last year, the National Pastors Conference down there, and we spent the weekend together. And, and Dick Gould knows that I spent some time with him, so now he periodically sends me Jesse's blogs. It's a blog called The Cripplegate. And this past week, he sent one on repentance. And in that particular blog, he quotes Charles Spurgeon. I thought I had read all of Spurgeon's pertinent quotes, but this one uh, captured me uh, a great deal. And I thought it pertinent to our text in Jeremiah 3 tonight. Here's what Spurgeon said. Sin and hell are married unless repentance proclaims the divorce. Let me repeat that again. Sin and hell are married unless repentance proclaims the divorce. He is saying that true repentance marks the divorce between sin, the penalty of sin, the power of sin, the love for sin, and, and hell, which is the eternal destiny of those who love their sin and are enslaved to it. And then he offered this example. Imagine you come home and you've had a long day and so you take your briefcase strap and you, you flip it over your shoulder, you get out of the car and then you gather the garbage that I collected in your car that day and you put it in a bag and you're walking to your door and your daughter comes running to you like Ella does every time I come home <laughs> and says, Daddy, Daddy, and embraces you at that moment, what you have in your arms, the, the bag, the briefcase, and that bag of garbage become very less significant. In fact, they become insignificant to you because you love something profoundly more than what you have in your possession. And so you throw off the briefcase, you throw aside that bag of garbage, and you embrace your child. And Jesse said, that is repentance. I think it's a helpful, helpful illustration because this is exactly what the Lord is doing in Jeremiah chapter 3. Except here, he's not the beloved daughter. He is depicting himself as our father and as our bridegroom our husband, and his love is infinitely greater than even a child's love for her dad. And like that man with that bag of trash, when he comes to us and we experience that kind of what, what Hebrews, uh, the, the book of uh, the Old Testament describes as his hesed, that is his, his steadfast love and his emmet, his faithfulness, that sin that we have held on to becomes much less significant to us. We lay it down and we embrace our, our bridegroom and our father. Well, that's what's going on here. And we see this in chapter 19 as he continues this treatise on Israel's sin and his call to true repentance. Now notice in verse 19, he said, I said, 
how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations. And I thought that you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. Now, under Hebrew law, a woman generally, and there were a few exceptions. You can find them in Numbers uh, 27, Numbers 36. But generally speaking, the daughters had no claim to an inheritance. But the Lord wanted Israel, his bride, uh, to have a son's portion. And so uh, this language of inheritance and the land is used over and over in the Old Testament. And this land was the most tangible evidence of the relationship between the Lord and Israel. And in light of this benevolence, in light of this mercy, this love, and in language attributing human-like passions to the Lord. Now, this is, this is called anthropopathisms. It, it is... It is attributing human-like passions so that we can capture something of the heart of God. Remember, uh, Calvin said that when God speaks to us, it's like a, a nursing maid lisping to a baby. But in, in this language that is very much like a, a passionate um, father, he said, I thought you would call me. I, he says, I thought... You would call me my father and would not turn. That is in no way denying his omniscience. We need to keep that in mind. When we read language like this, we have to read them in those very strong propositional truths that affirm the reality that God knows all things. He's declared the end from the beginning. But we are capturing here something of the, the passion of God in this, uh, this verse and so, by using this father metaphor, he's giving us here an idea of his love for his people. And all of us know that a father's disappointment brings greater remorse to a son or daughter than a father's anger. We've all been there. That The last thing we want to do is disappoint our father. And that's... That's what's being communicated here. But one metaphor is not sufficient. So we've got this language of fatherhood here. But the relationship between the Lord and Israel, the people of God, is too rich uh, to be defined by one human relationship. So now he's going to change metaphors in verse 20. Again, this is cumulative effect. It's kind of like when you study the doctrine of salvation. There are so many different metaphors to describe our, our salvation in Jesus Christ, like justification and re redemption and reconciliation and regeneration. Um, there's, there's too many. Salvation is too glorious. Hebrews calls it so great a salvation. It's too glorious to ever be communicated by one metaphor. It's the same way here with God's relationship with his people. So here's the second metaphor that we've already seen. He says, surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me. That, that language, that verse, uh, that word treacherous is found over and over again. To me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. And so here we see the pathos of God uh, as the betrayal of both 
um, parental and marital love, both of which comprise the highest expressions of human love. Uh, there's no higher expressions of human love than parental love and marital love. And that's why he's communicating with these two metaphors. And of course, one's capacity to love is proportionate to one's capacity to, to hurt, uh, to, to experience pain when that person is portrayed uh, or, or uh, betrayed. And so the Lord's said anguish here seems at face value to bring Israel to repentance. And, and there's been a lot ink spilled of, uh, in verses 21 uh, and following because there are some who believe that this is real repentance. I'm just going to betray my hand. I do not believe that verses 21 to uh, verse 25 is real repentance. Notice in verse 21. So God has come to, him, uh, to Israel. He's come as a husband. He's come as a father. He has spoken about his heartbreak over their idolatry, over their treachery. And here's the response. A voice on the bare heights is heard. The weeping and the pleading of Israel's sons because they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. So they seem to be admitting here, verse 21, and saying everything the Lord wanted them to say. But I would submit to you, if these were true words of repentance, the rest of Jeremiah's ministry would have been unnecessary. This is just the beginning of his ministry. And I think that time will tell that this was not true repentance. In fact, it's very possible, it's likely, when you read this language of bare heights. Does anybody have another translation than bare heights? Uh, this language of bare heights refers to the centers for idol worship that were, that were destroyed during the reform movement of King Josiah. You can read about that in 2 Chronicles 34. When, when Josiah brought about that reform in Judah, uh, they destroyed all of the, the pagan, you know, altars. And, and so uh, on these hills, where they, the, the high places where they worshipped the false gods, they destroyed them all. And many scholars, most scholars perhaps, believe that's why this language of bare heights is used here. So there's something fishy about the fact that they're still standing on the bare heights, which were places for idolatry. If they were truly serious about repentance, they needed to come down. You think they would have come down from the places where they had worshipped false gods and gone to the temple. And so what appears to be the case here is you see attrition rather than contrition. Again, we've talked about that a lot here. What is the distinction between attrition versus contrition? Well, attrition is brokenness over the consequences of your sin. And that does not require a, a, a circumcised heart. That does not require a regenerate heart to be broken 
over the consequences of sh in fact i would say virtually every pagan in the world uh, experiences at times attrition but we know that the seed or you might say the dna of true repentance is contrition uh, what is repentance it's a saving grace the baptist catechism teaches us whereby the sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred over his or her sin turn from it unto God with full endeavor and purpose after new obedience. There does not appear to be this kind of repentance. We who are parents, we all develop this gift early on of being able to discern whether our children are truly repentant or they're just concerned about what's going to happen because of their disobedience. And, and so we can imagine Israel going back to these temples that are now barren hilltops, what he calls the barren heights, and they cry and they weep and they plead because their gods have been destroyed. Remember, this chapter 2 to chapter 6 takes place during the time of King Josiah's reign and King Josiah's reign was marked by reform but it was merely an outward reform even though Josiah was legit he was a godly king he could not reform the hearts of his people and so it was just a kind of externalism and now their gods have been destroyed and they're weeping and they're crying out to God but it's not true repentance. And it's easy in Jeremiah, and we've been through three chapters at this point. It's easy. Uh, and you hear this a lot when people talk about the book of Jeremiah to say, man, all this talk about sin, all this talk about judgment. I just read a blog article by Dr. Moeller on Joel Osteen. And my goodness, if you want to see something shocking, uh, we're in a bubble here because the people responding to his critique of Joel Osteen, the fangs come out. I mean, you, I live in a world where I assumed everybody would have affirmed that article, that critique of Joel Osteen. But no, the greater world loves them some Joel Osteen. And Joel Osteen, he will not touch sin. He will not touch judgment. And here's a direct quote. He says, I want my people to sleep well at night. And now we're going to see in Jeremiah, there were prophets of that day just like Joel Osteen. They wanted their, the people to sleep well at night. They didn't want their consciences uh, troubled by this idea of sin. Jeremiah is giving us a very dark and bleak picture. But when we do see the grace of God in Jeremiah, it's going to shine like a lighthouse on a stormy sea. In fact, it takes that kind of darkness to appreciate grace. Without our understanding, without Jeremiah's understanding of, of sin and idolatry, Grace is kind of like hearing the gospel message is kind of like hearing elevator music. Elevator, have you ever seen anybody dance on an elevator? Nobody dances to elevator music. 
It's just kind of background noise. And that's what the gospel is to people who do not understand the heinousness, the wickedness, the consequences of sin. Jeremiah is giving us a good dose of that. Notice in verse 22, now we do see grace. Return, O faithless sons. I will heal your faithlessness. Isn't that glorious? Behold, we come to you. For you are the Lord, our God. Now this is the third time the Lord makes his appeal. We saw it in verse 14. Return, O faithless children. We saw it as well in verse 12. Return, faithless Israel. But this time, we see this appeal with a glorious promise. I will heal. Now, if you've ever been sick and you have this promise from a physician of healing, that, that will make you celebrate. And here, we have a promise of that. And we also see in this a, a tension that we need to always keep. You see people out of balance when it comes to trying to solve this tension. But what you see here is divine sovereignty and human responsibility. But even our human responsibility is grounded by divine sovereignty. Notice this responsibility. They must return. And yet here we have this promise of healing their faithlessness. Here's, here's the, the, literally the translation. Turn you turning away sons and I will hear, heal your turnings. That's literally the translation. Turn you turning away son, sons and I will heal your turnings. And Jeremiah was very beholden to Hosea. Hosea was written, uh, you know, in the century prior to, to Jeremiah. And so Jeremiah loved Hosea. He loved, he meditated on it. You could tell Hosea uh, ministered to the northern kingdom and Jeremiah was primarily the southern kingdom. But he obviously clearly had a copy of Hosea. And this is an echo of Hosea 14. Listen to Hosea 14.1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Verse 4, I will heal your apostasy. Indeed, this is a promise that goes beyond mere forgiveness. He'll heal their, their tendency towards rebellion. He'll heal their apostasy. And in verses 23 to 25, Jeremiah calls them to see three things about their idolatry which are very relevant today. Again, he's making a cumulative case. He's giving them mercy. He's giving them warnings. And he's also giving them a realistic picture of their idolatry. Because our idols are beautiful to us in our natural state. We wouldn't pursue them if, we, if they weren't attractive to us. We really believe the idols offer us something that the Lord doesn't. Because deep down, we believe God holds out on us. He's a holdout. That, he, that he's not as good as the Bible says that he is. And so we believe we have to go get ours. And so here we're going to see a very realistic picture of these, these idols. And the first thing we see is that false gods deceive. 
Notice verse 23. Truly the hills are a delusion. What are the hills? That's where they offered, that's the high places. That's where the, these barren hills, this is where they offered their, uh, their worship to the strange gods, if you will. The orgies on the mountains. Now, now why is that language there? Because many of these, these false gods required you to commute. The way you, re, you communed with these false gods was through prostitutes. Uh, it, it's heinous language, but it's exactly what it was. He says, the, or, the hills are a delusion. The orgies on the mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. So he's telling them, hey, false gods deceive. All the bell worship on the mountains was for the sake of their health, their wealth, their fertility. But in the end, nothing. Nothing. I'm reminded of this movie where Jimmy Fallon, what was the name of that movie, where he is a Boston Red Sox fanatic? Fever Pitch. And he, he is engaged to um, Drew Barrymore. And his family has had season tickets with the Boston Red Sox for generations. And they're about to get married, and Drew Barrymore discerns something. She discerns that he likes the Boston Red Sox just a bit too much for her, for her liking. And so she says to him, I will marry you if you will, if you will uh, get rid of your season tickets. Well, he loved Drew Barrymore, but he loved his Boston Red Sox more. <laughs> and so they broke up. And there's this scene where he is, he's in the field, he's coaching these 12-year-old boys in baseball, and he is miserable. And uh, one of the little boys on the team comes up to him and says, Coach, could I ask you a question? He says, sure. He says, does the Boston Red Sox love you as much as you love them? And that was an epiphany for him because he realized his idol didn't love him back. His, his God did not love him back. And that's what Jeremiah is saying here. Look, uh, it's a delusion. You're putting your hope in these things other than the true and living God. And where has it gotten you? They never deliver. They can never promise you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. They will not forgive you when you sin against them. The second thing, we see false gods cost. Notice verse 24. But from our youth, the shameful things have devoured all for which our fathers labored. Their flocks, their herds, their sons, and their daughters. And so these false gods required you to offer sacrifices to them. They sacrificed their substance they sacrificed their families for no return. And scholars believe that even at this point, Jeremiah is referring to child sacrifice here. Remember, that's the reason they were to put to death the Canaanites. Lest they be like them. And they didn't. And when they came into Canaan... They took on the religion of the Canaanites, just like they had taken on the religion of the Egyptians 
prior to their exodus. And that's why, in fact, Genesis 22 is there when God tells Abraham to offer his son as a sacrifice. And Isaac asks, Father, where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide himself the lamb. The reason that's there was to communicate to Israel is that you could never offer enough to satisfy the true and living God. If God is going to be satisfied, it won't be by you offering up your sons. It will be by me offering the lamb. So Genesis 22 was a gospel communicated to these people that he knew would have a real tendency towards child sacrifice. And you see it here. The gods demanded the lives of their children and they were willing to offer them. Now we're going to learn more about that in chapter 7 when we see Jeremiah's sermon at the what they call the Valley of Slaughter. Third thing we see about these false gods, they shame. Notice verse 25. Let us lie down in our shame and let our dishonor cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers from our youth, even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Now, in verse 24, he actually calls Baal by the nickname. Notice in verse 24, the shameful thing, that is referring to Baal, and the Hebrew is ha-boseth, the shame, literally, the shame. From our youth, the shame has devoured all for which our fathers labored. And he's already, he's already made the point. If you look back in chapter 2, verse 5, he's already made the point that we become like what we worship. We saw that this morning. But in chapter 2, verse 5, it says, They went after worthlessness, and they became worthless. And so, they became the shame that they worshipped. That's why it says in verse 25, Let us lie down in our shame because of the shameful thing that has devoured them. And most scholars believe that's referring to Baal worship. But the Lord's not going to keep them there. There's too much at stake. Way too much at stake. And in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he describes what true repentance is with three conditional sentences all beginning with the, ver the word if. Notice, if you return, O Israel, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives... So this is what repentance looks like. It's a confession, it's a commitment, and it's a willingness to lay down your idols, to lay down your sins. You don't come to a king on your terms. You don't negotiate with God the king. You come to him on your terms. Uh, there was a movement back in the 80s and maybe even 70s uh, called the Free Grace Movement. And I know that uh, I... My pastor in Tuscaloosa brought in a guy named Zane Hodges. Zane Hodges was his mentor. And he did a conference at our church. And Zane Hodges had me believing that anybody that taught that repentance was necessary 
was a modern-day Judaizer. Of course, he had one particular pastor in mind that, uh, who pastors in Los Angeles. Um, and I believed that. He had me convinced. But then I began to read my Bible. I had not been a Christian long. I, this was in January of 92. I was converted in August of 91. And so I believed this for about two months. And then I actually opened my Bible. And I began to realize that repentance is just essentially you coming to God on his terms. That's what conversion is. Without repentance, there is no salvation. There is no eternal life. And so though Zane Hodges was a friendly man, I learned that, he was dead wrong. In fact, uh, I would even say it was the kind of teaching that you could call heretical. Because how many people believed that and entered a repentless eternity that's a scary thought to think about and so notice what repentance is it's returning it's removing it's swearing confessing that the lord lives but notice in truth in justice and in righteousness what do we what does he mean by truth that your heart echoes your lips and so it's coming to church, recognizing, confessing that the Lord is king, but also your heart actually comports with what you are confessing, what you are singing with the people of God. Notice as well, it's injustice. Your dealings with others pleases the Lord. And then in righteousness, what does that mean? It's the unswerving commitment to uphold the worth of God's glory in every situation that you face uh, in a way that pleases him. Now, here's what I want you to think about. This is a promise of restoration, renewal, forgiveness. If these people repent, but remember what they're guilty of, child sacrifices. Isn't that remarkable? I mean, that's what I find so amazing if child sacrifice was one of their sins the lord is saying he is willing to forgive even the vilest of sins that is good news that is glorious news because i, I I'm, I'm convinced that no one here affirms child sacrifice that's the most heinous sin that we could ever imagine and God says, even for that, there is forgiveness. Even for that, there is renewal. There is mercy. Where sin abounds, mercy and grace much more abounds. And I want you to note the fruit of this. If they repent, notice the second part of verse 2. This is bigger than any person or any people. He says, then... Nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. This is a clear echo of the Abrahamic covenant. God had promised Abraham that his seed would be a blessing to the nations. The nations would know the, the Lord, Yahweh, 
through the light, through the seed, the custodian of Abraham's offspring. So Israel's repentance would have staggering consequences, not merely just for them, but for the nations. And this reminds us what's at stake as the people of God. I read yesterday of a, of a person who, who has been very immersed in church life his entire life, 40 years, and he has walked away from the faith. He has apostatized. And here's what he said. I wrote it down. There's a lot of things he said. But for sake of time, I'll just say this. During this time, I found something amazing. People who were more Christian than any Christian I'd ever met, and they weren't Christians. One of his points was he did not see a significant moral or ethical or any kind of elevation of love in his church that he had been in for 40 years than what he saw about his pagan friends. In fact, he said, I saw superior love. I saw superior ethics and morality among my pagan friends. And I am convinced that one of the reasons unbelievers are not interested in our message is that they don't see a significant difference in the people of God, in the way they speak, in the way they act, the way they, uh, the way they interact with people. And Jeremiah is saying, your repentance or lack of will have an impact on the Great Commission. And so there's a lot at stake here. This is more than just our personal relationship with the Lord. This has to do, this has cosmic implications. So in verses 3 to 4, Jeremiah is going to use two metaphors to drive home this kind of repentance required. The Lord has heard Israel's mock confessions before. It's often been bogus, and this time he warns them to follow through. Notice in verse 3. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem. Again, for those of you that haven't been here, he's writing during a time when great reforms are taking place. Chapters 2 to 6, virtually every scholar will tell you, took place during the time of King Josiah. King Josiah made sweeping reforms when they found the law in the temple, in the renovation project in the temple. And so they made these great reforms, but external reforms do not necessarily change the human heart. And one of the reasons they hated Jeremiah was because he wasn't convinced. He wasn't convinced. He wasn't at all sold on their repentance. He wasn't at all convinced about their fidelity to the Lord. He was exposing their self-righteousness, and it cost him dearly, as we're going to see in Jeremiah. Notice in verse 3, For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. The Lord wants you to do more than merely tend your little garden you keep planting year after year. Uh, he wants you to get out your 
your John Deere, your, your Massey Ferguson, and he wants you to hitch your plow to that, that tractor, and he wants you to break up the rocky soil of your heart. He wants you to get at the root of your issues. This, this kind of faux kind of mock repentance where nothing is changing is not repentance. And I see it all the time. I see guys who come to me and say, man, I, I'm enslaved to this sin. And I can't help myself. And I, here's what I say to them. I say, well, if, if a terrorist had a gun aimed to your mother's head, could you help yourself? Uh, yes. Then that's not the issue. The issue is you love this sin more than you love God. That's the issue. And, 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 and yet... How many days of the week do these same guys repent and, and confess their sin? And re That's not repentance. You can confess and, and, and word, you know, and, and mouth the words of repentance all day long. That's what Jeremiah is going after. He says you've got to get at the root. Because the kind of repentance you're displaying is not going to bring salvation. Philip Ryken says the reason we are weak and ineffective in the Christian life is that we want to plant the flowers of heaven in the same pot with the weeds of the world. And that, I think, is what Jeremiah is saying. He said, you've got to, you've got to dig out, plow out those weeds. Second metaphor you see in verse 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Now this, this would have been... Almost sarcastic to Judah. Why? What was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant? Circumcision. They would have said, we're already circumcised. But just like Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 30, Jeremiah is talking about circumcision of the heart. This is conversion. This is the new birth, if you will. And so together, these two metaphors... Make a single point, verses 3 and 4. Repentance involves a new beginning with God and a new surrender, a daily surrender of your heart, mind, and your soul. So let's close this out. We see this gracious, we see, we're going to see it throughout Jeremiah, this gracious appeal, gracious invitation, time and time again. This calling the people of God to repentance. But I want you to remember, he gives us all even a stronger call to repentance. And, and you could perhaps say invitation under the new covenant than he gave even under the old covenant because of Jesus Christ. I, I just listed these, listen, listen to these invitations from the New Testament. They kind of are, remind us of the kind of invitation the Lord gives Israel time and time again in the prophets and in Jeremiah. Listen to these. Follow me. Matthew 4 verse 19. Come to me. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to the wedding feast. Matthew 22 verse 4. Enter into the joy of your master. Matthew 25 21. And let the one who is thirsty come. 
let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Revelation 22, verse 17. But all of these invitations to the sinner came at a cost. Because a sinner has to have his sins atoned for, for this call to be made. And we know how those sins were atoned for. In other words, it's how our faithlessness, back to verse 22, would be healed. How would our faithlessness be healed? One would come after we see century after century of faithlessness and fall repentance. We see one who would come who embodies all that Israel was to be. Who embodies all that the king of Israel was to be. Who embodied all that Adam was to be. And every moment of his life, he was faithful. As our substitute. And then, on a Roman cross, falsely accused of treachery, he is judged for our faithlessness. And in his resurrection, for those who trust in him, for those who repent of their sin and commit their lives to him, our faithlessness is healed. And that is that gospel word that we so desperately need to overcome practically the daily temptations towards faithlessness that we all recognize in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. It's hard, but Lord, it makes your grace stunning. And I just pray, Lord, that this grace that we're going to see throughout Jeremiah in the midst of the dark, turbulent clouds would, would do such a work in our hearts that it would stir us daily towards new obedience. Out of love for our Father, out of love for our bridegroom. And we ask these things in the name of our Christ Amen.